0: Okay, so uh, welcome to Grow. Glad you're here. It's February. What that means for those who may never learn the rhythm, we change things all the time. Thank you guys for being a church that doesn't get too bent out of shape or that we've never done it that way before. Uh, So we change stuff constantly. For the last couple of years, we're in a rhythm that seems helpful to the flow of our body. The semesters of the school year become the semesters of our training, teaching, discipleship content. So February to May, it's February, so we're starting a new class. And then August to November. The other four months, June, July, December, January, we do what we were doing last month, if any of you were in this room. Okay? So since we're starting a new thing, this is actually going to go all year. Uh, Myself and another, another, Helper, who I have a slide about in a minute so I'm going to tell you who, are going to be teaching this class. And it'll go through the middle of the fall. Like mid-September. After that, for the rest of the time, September, October, November, we're going to do what we've been talking about. And we're going to do it with Romans 8. So if you want to be using some of your quiet times this year to be meditating in Romans 8, You'll be light years ahead when we get there, but we're going to do something called Bible arching, and we're going to take Romans 8 and do what we've been talking about all year, okay? And you can do it, we'll do it in other passages, just kind of as a, you know, practice stuff along the way. We're using this book, uh, it's called Grasping God's Word by Scott Duvall and Danny Hayes. They were mine and uh, Brian Smith and Nathan Kaiser and Amanda Kaiser, then McAdams and uh, Tracy's professor at college. Anybody else go to OBU that I forgot? Did you have Dr. Duval and Hayes? <laughs> they weren't no. Professor Rick says they weren't born then. Uh, so this is a book we're using. No need to get it. You're welcome to get it. There is an accompanying workbook. You guys saw Mike Packard's post on Church Center. He's already like three weeks, four weeks deep doing the the workbook, that's like your extra credit class if you want to do that. I know another church member just told me today that she bought the workbook and she's already working through it. That's that's extra credit. Um, so do that if you would like to. Do it with another brother or sister. Um, so the course teachers between now and September are going to be me and, and this guy. <laughs> Who is that? BJ Maxwell. BJ <laughs> Maxwell. All right. So we're going to tag team on this. Um And today's section is on Bible translation. So if you have a paper Bible with you, hold it up. Okay? Not a digital Bible. Yeah, okay. You can put them down. Y'all saw, there's almost everybody in the room held up a paper Bible. Here's the question. How did that get to your hand? God, just drop it out of the sky. Leather bound in English. Translators. <laughs> We're gonna talk about Bible translations. So this is classy, this is teachy, but this is some background and foundation that'll be helpful, I think, to your Christian life and walk and your your walk with the Lord. So with that in mind, let's pray and we'll get after it. Father, thank you for your word written, that special revelation one of two of the great expressions of your special revelation, your Word written and your Word incarnate, your Son, Jesus. So thank you for your Word that we can hold in our hands, and thank you for the Logos, your Word, your Son, who has saved us and indwells us. We pray that you would help us throughout this year, now to May and then again August to November, that by this time next year, By your grace, we would be better at obeying, rightly handling the word of truth. Help us, Lord. Grow this church in what we say is our primary mission in guiding people to faith in Jesus and growing together in biblical maturity. Make that happen as we do some study on how to study. Your word, we pray in Jesus name, amen all right, so high school students are with us today, middle school students next week they toggle week to week. you guys help each other um, and you know talk about some of these things from time to time. there are five things we want to talk about today how did we get our English Bible the ones you held up a brief survey of the various English translations that have existed and are still coming approaches to translating god 's word how to choose a translation. And then finally, some concluding thoughts. So first, how did we get our English Bible? When you held it up, I said, where did it come from? Did it fall out of the sky? Matt answered by reading the slide. We had translators. So how did we get our English Bible? This is common, like you all know this, but it's going to help you, I I pray and trust, uh, to just put it together kind of organizationally. God inspired His Word. The human authors who wrote inspired by the Holy Spirit shared that with others who copied, and there's the transmission of the Word. And then those copies were translated into all sorts of human languages, including English translation and interpretation. So we're going to take these one at a time. This is our first point. How did we get our English Bible three things about inspiration so I just said there's inspiration transmission translation first inspiration three things about that there's a divine author of that book God himself there are also human authors so like the Lord Jesus Christ one person two natures divine and human not two people one person so also that book is both divine and human it's perfectly theopneustos, God-breathed. It's God's own words written in and through the agency of the human authors so such that their own personality shine through. You can tell one writer's material from another writer. Because though God wrote it all, he used the human authors under inspiration without, without superseding their own humanity it's divine and human so that's two aspects and those two aspects conspired for the text the original text we'll talk about a word we'll use to describe those original texts in just a second so that's inspiration human men inspired by the holy spirit to write god's thoughts god's words transmission How did what they wrote get transferred? Well, we'll look at two aspects of that. First, copies of the originals. That's why I said a minute ago. There were scribes. There were amanuensises. That's a person who wrote what the human author told them to write. So, who wrote the book of Romans? That's a correct answer. The Apostle Paul. The book of Romans says... I, Tertius, write this with my own hand. It's in the book. So who wrote it? God did through Paul, who apparently spoke to Tertius who wrote it. He was the amanuensis. Okay? So those original writings got transmitted, that is copied, and all those copies have been read by a wide audience of linguistic scholars who put together what we call a critical text. They're not critical of the text. They're not critiquing it negatively. They are critiquing it to make sure that they're putting together what the original manuscript had. That's called the critical text. So the critical text is the latest or current edition of the Hebrew, that's what the Old Testament was written in, or Greek, that's what the New Testament was written in. Rare exception in the Old Testament also has a small segment of Aramaic. So Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Hebrew and Aramaic, Old Testament, Greek, New Testament. Those copies have been studied by the linguistic scholars who have done their research on all the manuscripts that are available, and they've come up with a critical text. So the standard... Hebrew critical text today is called Biblia Hebraica Stuttgart B-H-S. And so if you go study Hebrew like Trey Davis did last semester at a seminary, he did it by extension, so he stayed in Memphis, you would have that critical text to read the Hebrew Old Testament. If you were going to study the Greek New Testament, you would have this or the latest edition of this. This is the Greek New Testament. And the critical text that's the accepted scholarly uh, latest edition is the UBS, United Bible Society Greek New Testament. Okay, these critical editions, this book says, represent the best scholarly consensus regarding the autographs, that's the original manuscript, and they form the basis for almost all modern translations. So when you held up your Bible a minute ago Now, if this was my English Bible, if I held up my Bible, it would be the best English translation in the New Testament of this book. This is what they used to get what you just held up. Okay. Hope that makes some sense. We're going to have some time for questions. I really hope. I've got my alarm set so that we do it. Uh, Translation and interpretation. So God-inspired original autographs that were copied, that's the transmission process. Now we get to translation and interpretation. It's not until this juncture in the process that we begin working with English translations of the Bible. So far, everything I've said, no English Bible. Now we get to what you guys held up or eventually get to what you guys held up. So three things I want to say about translation interpretation getting from Hebrew in the Old Testament Greek in the New Testament to your English Bible three things to say about it all the English editions are translated from the Hebrew and Greek either by one person a translator or by a committee of scholars a translation committee it's helpful for you and me to know if the one I'm reading was translated by one person or by a team of scholars who agreed together on that verbiage for that verse based on the critical text. Okay? Those translators or committees then write into our receptor language, which is English. This is how it gets to any other language. And then finally to you and to me, the modern reader. So that's our first point about... How did we get our English Bible? That was lightning round. Here's our longest point. We're gonna spend almost all our time here and then we'll click very quickly through points three, four, and five. A brief survey of English translations. Now, in the room, I'm guessing we have no less than four. If I was a betting man, I'd take the over. All right, there's at least four translations in the room, I would guess. So let's just, just tell us what do we have here today? All right, so you held them up, what were they? ESV, NASB. NASB, New Living, New, Living. New, King James. New King James, CSB. CSB read through that one last year. Loved it. There's five, so I would have I would have won the the over. <laughs> uh, any others in the room? Okay. How did we get them? A the brief survey of English translations. Well, we started at the end. Let's back way way up and talk about this historically. In this book, Introduction to Biblical Interpretation, Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard, they said estimates suggest that between 97 and 99% of the original New Testament can be reconstructed from the existing manuscripts beyond any measure of reasonable doubt. Like, oh no, not a hundred? So when they say 97 to 99% of this Greek New Testament, the critical text from all the copies we have, of all the manuscripts that we know of it that exist, 97 to 99% say these three authors, no doubt whatsoever, that's what Matthew or the Apostle Paul or John actually wrote in the original autograph. We can do that. You know how they get to that, right? They take all this wide variety of available manuscripts, they study them carefully, and they realize any adaptation in one needs to be substantiated enough by that same adaptation in all the others for it to be conclusive that that's what John wrote. But if it's one or a small sampling of aberrant adaptations, and you have this massive avalanche of consistency in the others, then you think, ah, that's 99%. The good news about the outstanding 1% to 3%, there is no point of doctrine contested in any of the, if you want to say, uncertain percentiles. Nothing about the deity of Christ, salvation by grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, zero uh, adaptation to any of that. So, uh, the percentage of the Old Testament is lower for the, to quote, beyond any measure of reasonable doubt, but those three authors would say over 90%, and if you wanted them to parse that out, they would say, quote, certainly more. Again, no no matter of doctrine. All right, so Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. uh, Greek. Hebrew and Aramaic, that's your Old Testament. Greek, that's your New Testament. This is a one-slide quote. There are over 5,000 manuscripts, handwritten copies of all or parts of the New Testament in existence today. So if we started here with Morgan, writing a love note to Trent, and then Trent was humble enough to pass it down the line and down the line and down the line and down the line but every one of you had to copy it and it finally made its way to Jeff there's enough people in this room that unless you were purposefully throwing off the process Jeff should be able to write down precisely word for word punctuation and all what Morgan wrote there's about 50 people here we have 5,000 with rock-solid confirmation that we know for sure what the original said. You have great reason to be confident, I'm going to say, in your English Bible. Okay, we'll get more on that in a moment. English translations. Uh, for those who came in late, had everybody who has a Bible hold it up and ask the question, how did you get it? Where did it come from? Well, here's part of the answer to that question. Uh, Maybe your mom gave it to you for Christmas. That's not necessarily what I'm asking. But you can divide the history of English translations of the Bible into two eras, two time periods. So if you go to college, you're going to take history up until a certain point and history since a certain point. The same can happen in Bible translations. So think about this prior to 1611 and since 1611. Why is that the fulcrum? Why is that the watershed? Yeah, King James Version. Okay, that's this timeline. These yellow dots show the work of getting the Bible into English before 1611. First, the Vulgate. Uh, Latin for vulgar, common. So, Jerome... Translated the Bible into Latin from the Hebrew and Greek about 400 AD. His work, called the Vulgate, is from the Latin word meaning common. So the people spoke Latin, he put it in Latin. That was around 400. In 1380, John Wycliffe was the first to translate the Bible into English. However, instead of a word for word translation, from Greek and Hebrew, he used the Latin to go from Jerome's to English rather than from Hebrew and Greek to English. And Wycliffe was accused of being a heretic for translating the Bible. And he suffered horrific persecution. You should acquaint yourself with his biography, long or short, you will be benefited by seeing a price paid for you to have an English Bible in your hand. Uh, You can listen to Piper's Let the... Uh, the Swans Are Not Silent Audiobiography of Wycliffe take an hour absolutely amazing um, but he was persecuted for his willingness to translate the Bible into the language of ordinary people and so many were threatened with severe penalties just for reading what Rick Wycliffe wrote okay so that's 1380 the most commonly used Bible in the English speaking world about, not even a decade later, 1388, was John Purvey's much improved edition over Wycliffe's. And this Bible, Purvey's, from 1388 onward, dominated the English-speaking scene for about 200 years. So for the next 200 years, until Tyndale. Another biography you would benefit yourself by getting acquainted with. Who was this guy? How did God use him? So after the invention of the printing press mid-1400s, renewed interest in classical language exploded. I'm taking some of this from Deval and Hayes. Added to that, the Protestant Reformation 1500s kicked English Bible translation into high gear and William Tyndale produces an English New Testament not based on the Latin in 1526, rather based on the Hebrew and the Greek. Um, any guesses why? Uh, let's see. Da-da-da. William Tyndale produces Hebrew and Greek. But he did not complete his Old Testament translation. Any guesses why he didn't complete it? They killed Martyr. 1536, Tyndale was executed. After they killed him, they exhumed his body and burned it. Because of his commitment to Bible translation and his desire to quote, this is Tyndale, make the boy that drives the plow in England know more of Scripture than many a scholar. Isn't that awesome? He wanted every little boy in England to know God's Word. That's awesome. And you're sitting in this room today in large part because God raised up people like Wycliffe and Tyndale and so many others. That quote came from F.F. F. Bruce's Books and the Parchment. Okay, so 1560. You get the Geneva Bible. During the reign of Bloody Mary, that's Mary I, many Protestants fled from England to safe havens of refuge. And a lot of them ended up in places like Geneva, Switzerland, the home of John Calvin. While in Geneva, the Oxford scholar, William Whittingham, with much help from a lot of other people, made a complete revision of the English Bible known as the Geneva Bible. That was the Bible of Shakespeare, that was the Bible of the Puritans, and that was the Bible that came over on the Nia, the Penta, and the Santa Maria. That was the Bible of the the pilgrims that came to the US, the Geneva Bible. Yet, because of notes in the margin of the Geneva Bible, that were Calvinistic the bishops of England were unwilling to use it in their churches but it was superior to the great bible that's Coverdell's Miles Coverdale's translation shortly before Tyndale's death the bishops of, of England knew that they needed another translation they didn't want this Calvinistic marginal Geneva version so they needed another one So the Roman Catholic and the Roman Catholic Church also knew that they needed another translation to support their doctrines. So like England, they produced several iterations of additions uh, to the Bible after Tyndale and Geneva. But since none of the previous translations satisfied the crown, King James I, he then authorized a new translation of the whole Bible for use in the churches of England. The leading university scholars produced the authorized version of 1611. Commonly known as King James Version. That's where that came from. That's why history up to 1611 is significant. All right, so the King James 1611. Now, this comes from this book. To argue that we should still use the 1769, we haven't even gotten there yet, King James Version edition, the one that's popular today, is to admit the necessity of revising a translation. This is the case since there have been thousands of changes from 1611 to 1769. So somebody reads the King James Version today, they're not reading the 1611. They're reading the 1769 or some iteration since then. Uh, DeVal and Hayes say they are literally two different Bibles. Why not continue the process of revision by drawing on the latest in biblical scholarship and using language that today's readers can understand? And finally, anything less seems to violate the intent of those who translated the original King James. Let me make a very important, important to me point. I was raised on the King James. I love the King James Version. I have nothing but the highest respect for the King James. I put this in there as a burr under the saddle of our King James-only friends. Uh, So you can ask questions about that later if you would like to. Let's keep the timeline going. Your English Bible, we got from 400, Greek and Hebrew to Latin, all the way to 1611, Greek and Hebrew to English with the King James. But the King James, as I just alluded to, was updated many times. 1629... 1638, 1729, 1762, and the one that's used as the basis for today's King James, 1769. Then, 1881, what is the ERV? English Revised Version. 1901, the ASV, what is that? American Standard Version. Then, 1971, the New American Standard. 1973, the first iteration of the NIV, 2001, the ESV. Many of you have that. I love to have benefited immensely from that at my own self. Let me go back. Yeah, that's it. All right, so we got to 2001. Uh, one of the uh, translations that was mentioned today was a CSB. I read through it last year I my read through the Bible. Love it. It's fantastic. That's since 2001. I don't know the exact date. All right, so now let's talk about how translators do it. How do they get from Greek New Testament to the New Testament you and I read? Right? I can hold it. doesn't mean I can read it, Right, <laughs> but it looks like Greek to me. Um, how do we get from this critical text? Everybody understand what we're talking about. We have no original manuscripts of any book of the Bible, no autographs. We do have a plethora of copies, those manuscripts, from which a critical text was produced from which your English New Testament was produced. How do we get from this to what you held up? That's what we want to talk about. Uh, There's two translation theories. This is gross oversimplification, functional and formal. Looser, tighter. Okay? More flexibility, more wooden. Alright, so in your more functional end of the spectrum, what does this one stand for? The message. Who was responsible, humanly speaking, for the message? Eugene Eugene Peterson. He produced the message not from the Greek and Hebrew, but from the English. He took translations and made the iteration we call the message. That's a very functional, I wouldn't even call it a translation, that's an interpretation. I'm not disparaging it, I'm defining it. Translation comes from original language to receptor language. Interpretation comes from receptor language to receptor language. Okay? So that's the message, very functional. What are these two? What's the G N B? Good news Bible. I love it. What's this? C E B. What does it stand for? <laughs> our, our star student on the front row. I love that. Alright, what is the C E V? It's probably on your grandmother's coffee table. Contemporary English version. Okay, what's this one? Two years ago, I read through this one. Fantastic. Love it. New Living Translation. In the middle of functional and formal, you get NIV. They use a translation philosophy that they call dynamic equivalence. Smoothing out to make sentences more palatable to modern English speakers. Again, I'm not disparaging it. I'm telling you what they say they do. In some cases, you get uh, go listen uh, go go find out why Jesus staying for two more days after he heard Lazarus was sick in John 11 is a big deal for the original NIV. The way they did the translating omits the possibility of getting a purpose statement but the sentence is a lot more smooth. Um, So I'll give you the purpose statement and then you can go if this piques any interest you can go figure it out. When he heard that Lazarus was sick, you don't get this in the original NIV, therefore he stayed two more days because he loved him. You don't get that purpose in the original NIV as part of their translation philosophy called dynamic equivalence. So it's about halfway. Uh, What's the RSV? Revised Standard Version, what's the HCSV? Holman Christian Standard, which is the predecessor to the CSB, which we just heard about. NASB, New American Standard, New King James, ESV, and then all the way on the most formal end of the spectrum would be King James and American Standard Version. Okay, you guys are doing great. We're almost to a point where we can do some interaction, questions. Choosing a translation. This is, a, this is really important. Um, I'll quote Dr. Adrian Rogers, and then I'll quote Clyde Cranford. <laughs> Rogers said the greatest thought that's ever entered his mind was that the sentence I'm about to say to you is true. God Answers Prayer. He's like... If you'll just pause on that for a moment, that's astonishingly wonderful. Clyde said, the reason that thought can enter Dr. Rogers' mind is because the Bible he reads corroborates it. It is true. God does answer prayer. How do you know that? Tells me so. Yes. Not because of the figment of your imagination. Not because you feel like it. God said so. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because He hears my voice and has turned His ear to my supplication. Therefore, I shall call upon the Lord as long as I live. If you believe He answers prayer, you'll talk to Him. Amen. Right? So that's... That's a a Bible thing. So choosing a translation is really important because here's a Tozerism. That our finite mind can follow the thoughts of God without exploding is amazing. Your English Bible is going to help you do that. The more precise it is to the original Greek and Hebrew, the more Precise, you'll be able to think on some of the nuances. So it it matters on what you're aiming to do with your English translation, so here we go. Uh, I'm going to give some guidelines on choosing an English translation. Four considerations. These all come from Deval and Hayes. Number one, modern English. I would say don't let self be the only determiner. That's why there's four. But a language you can compute, you can understand and different people are at different reading comprehension levels and I think it's really important to take that into account and we should always be trying to raise our ability to read critically so don't stay with, you know yeah, only that Uh, second based on standard Hebrew and Greek text was it translated or was it interpreted did people have a Greek and Hebrew uh, critical text in front of them as they translated was it one person or a committee or did they take a good English translation and then update it that's helpful for you to know second I mentioned this or third translated by a committee or an individual Um, most of the modern English versions are translated by committee which obviously uh, God said in Proverbs many times there's wisdom in the abundance of counselors Or to quote Alexander Strauch in his biblical eldership book, no local church should walk in lockstep with the foibles of one man. That's why we need a plurality of elders. Similarly, with a translation committee, you get the wisdom and critique of multiple eyes and minds looking at one sentence to try to convey it as best as is possible. Finally, appropriate for your purpose. So there's one consideration. Here's my suggestion. These are very loose. These are, I would want to know an actual person and case by case and do personal soul care as best I can. But generally, if you're a kid, New Living Translation or New Contemporary Version. If you've never read the New Living or listened through it, I commend it to you. I said I read through it two years ago. Fantastic. I listened through most. I read through a lot. I, I love it. I think any kid who has parents like you guys could profit immensely from the new living. If you're brand new to the Bible, you've never read Genesis to Revelation, you open it to the middle, put your finger down, don't even know what that, didn't even know that book was in there. You're brand new to the Bible, contemporary English, the Message, I made a comment about earlier, or the Amplified Version, which three years ago I read through. It's just, it's just great. Uh, English is your second language the Good News Bible. It was actually produced with that purpose in mind. New King, uh, pardon me, if you're a King James only person, I wouldn't say, I would say, okay, that's great. But I would commend the New King James because, again, nobody's reading the 1611. I've tried to read some pages of it. And, I mean, this isn't saying a lot because I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box. It's hard to follow. Um, So, even the version we read is updated from the original. So, New King James would be commended. And then, if you're going to study your Bible and try to get the therefores and the so that's and the purpose statements and the prepositional phrases latched on to the right phrase before it or after it, which is what we'll do with Romans 8 at the end of this journey, then I'd recommend one of these four. I could put others in there, but there's four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There's 11. Okay, That's more than a third of the world has access to. That, that's enough. Uh, another way to say that is there's no excuse not to know the Bible. In the English world, we have such access. All right, my alarm's going to go off in one minute, which is a good opportunity to get to our conclusion. One minute means we have ten minutes for Q&A. All right, here's the conclusion. That's a three slide quote. And if you're a rooted student, um, pay special attention here because I'm going to go back so you'll listen to me and not read it. Pay special attention because for most of <coughs> us, for most of us here, the opportunity for what I'm about to say has already passed us by. Too late. Too late. We can't do this. Uh, Brain cells start mushing together. (laughs) And uh, we got some English as second language people right here in the room with us. And they know the challenges of learning a second or third language. But if you even ask those people right now to pick up a third or fourth or fifth, even those people might struggle a little bit because it's passed us by. But you guys... You're still sharp. Your brain's still on fire. So here's a good quote. Be thankful that God has used translators to get the message of the original text into our hands. Can you imagine the Christian life without your own copy of God's Word? In spite of the many good Bible translations available to us, there is no such thing as a perfect translation. Languages change over time. Committed scholars and linguists must continue to work hard to get the message of the original text into a language that people can understand. And there it is. Who knows? Right there. Who knows? God may call you to serve as a Bible translator. What a great way to spend the rest of your life. uh, Just like Wycliffe and Tyndale and so many others spent their life so that we could have our copy of God's Word. So that's session one, Bible translations. I think we have 18 total sessions before we do Romans 8. So we have eight minutes. Uh, not the seminary grad. <laughs> okay, uh, hang on, before you ask your question, uh, I know there are several that this fits. You have taken at least one seminary class in your life raise your hand higher okay so now ask they'll know okay. Uh, <laughs> okay um you said they persecuted all these early bible translators could you make a comment about why anyone would ever dream of doing such a thing why did they hate that yeah in case it sounds bizarre. A teenager giving their life to something like that? No, my question is they killed uh, Tyndale. Yeah. Why did they kill him? Why didn't yeah. they want him to translate it? Yeah. Because like yeah. ex cathedra is a really bad doctrine. And if you want to preserve it, you kill people who give <clears throat> the boy who drives the plow in England a copy of the Bible. Ex cathedra means the church has the ability to speak on behalf of God inherently that's a Catholic doctrine which dominated the English speaking scene and the Latin speaking world for a long time and if you speak English and you have no Bible and I read it in front of you every Sunday in Latin blah 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 and then say that means da 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 then you gotta take my word or or not So if you can read it for yourself, then Romans 13 happens to you like it did Augustine. Romans 1 happens to you like it did Luther. Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Augustine was converted. Romans 1, not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first, also to the Gentile for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith or those who are righteous by faith shall live and Luther was converted you can read it yourself then doctrines of works based regeneration and salvation don't line up so yeah love that question um, yeah, I mean, the Bible's the most dangerous book in the world. And a lot of power-hungry regimes don't want people to have it. Katie. I'm a preacher of habit. I love the ESV. Like, I, I don't like reading other translations just because it's, it's what's familiar to me, it's what I've got memorized. But you've mentioned reading through several translations. Is that something you would commend, like, get outside your normal translation Great question. You read multiple translations Would I commend that is the question if you didn't hear. But for me I'm going to tell you why. Part of the reason I do it is for you poor people. Because I get stuck. I get stuck. And I'm reading like I don't think there's much that can help my preaching get better. Because I'm where I'm at. But if I can hear a phrase or see a verse from a different angle and get fresh terminology, it might help me meditate on it so I can hopefully say something uh, a little different. So that's one reason, but also it just benefits me. I mean, when I went through, I said New Living and Amplified, they're very functional, not very formal, but yeah, it's just helpful. I would say when we get only one iteration of a translation... We can sometimes get sentimentally attached to it, not spiritually attached. We just like it. We don't really know why. It's just because 40 guys in a room decided to word it that way. But, you know, they did their homework. So, yes, read a lot of translations. And, I mean, every time I'm preaching, which I'm not today, pray for Brian, um, I try to read the sermon text in as many English translations as I can. Just that, I always find that helpful. Good. Uh, ben. Can you say something about the different versions of the NAS that have come out in the last years? Yeah, so I, I like, I'm, I'm sentimentally attached to the NAS, but I'm especially attached to a version I don't use uh, for you, the 77 edition, not the 95, because the 77 had the these and the thou's. But it only used them in reference to the divine or in communication to the divine. So it was you, your, y'all, the Thou, and I'll, it just helped me differentiate, but also reverentially, I, I like that. Um, but there's a new iteration of the New American Standard that we don't use, uh, only because I got like seven copies of the 95. But the 2000 uh, NASB is, thank you, 2020 NASB is, is fantastic, um, yeah, none of them are perfect. It is still sold out or someone else bought it or It's the Lockman Foundation. Lachman, yeah. yep. they sold the rights, some rights to the Homan, some rights to Zonga. Gotcha. Uh, I'm not reading through the whole thing this year, but I'm picking and choosing different times to just randomly dive into the legacy standard. Uh, this year, I've read numbers of passages in that and I think it's fantastic. It's a brand new translation. Okay, we got time for two more. Comments or questions? Back row Baptist, April Sawyer. What you got? Well, let me just go back to this slide. So the Vulgate is 400, right? And then you're getting English here, so almost, I mean, you've got either Greek, Hebrew, or Latin until 1380 in the Latin family of languages. English being one of them. So really until 1380, you don't have an English translation of the Bible. You have a priest reading the Latin and telling you in English... What it may or may not say, and you're, you are or you are not taking their word for it. But the martyrdom still carried on into the 1600s over. Oh man. English translations possession of the Bible. Oh yeah, I mean uh, Calvin's not a choir boy uh, in a lot of ways. so <laughs> there's a there's, uh, yeah, a lot of sketchy past and a lot of, a lot of eras here. But yeah, I mean, there's martyrdom going on for Bible and translation issues all the way up. Probably post, I'm exposing my ignorance, but probably post 1611, but definitely through the Reformation era. Okay, one more. Yes, ma'am. When did the Apocrypha become a thing or a not thing? Like, was it a thing and became a not thing, or was it a. Do you know what I'm asking? When did we realize we had a different Bible than the Catholics? Somebody can help me with I mean, Dr. Google probably will know this answer in three seconds. I'll expose my ignorance. But the apocryphal books were Old Testament era, and some, Maccabees and so forth, I think widely accepted by New Testament times um, by various entities. Yeah, I don't know. Somebody ask Google that one. That's a good question. Trey? Maybe, I may be off but I think, and I can't give a specific detail, I think maybe 1540, maybe 1546, okay. and as part of the counter-reformation, uh, part, part of their being added had to do with, I think, combating uh, Reformation doctrine and and I'm pretty sure, but if yeah. you like, look that up, I think that's when they were added. And I think it had to be, it yeah, was part of the, so to to the <clears throat> <clears throat> Okay. Well, I hope you can see this is going to be at least intriguing and hopefully helpful. And BJ and I will tag team. Um, next week is already prepped and it's not as many slides. So maybe we'll have more time for interaction. That was English Translation's